my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi folks, uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, May 16th, 2012. Well, this is going to be an interesting edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, as I've stated in other editions of Fighting for the Faith, I generally try to make every episode have a common theme. And as I was working on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, well, the common theme for this particular edition of Fighting Faith will uh, Fighting for the Faith will also be the title for this episode, and that is is that heresy has become the new orthodoxy. And uh, I'm not saying this is not a joke. This is a serious, serious dilemma that uh, the church currently faces right now. All of our unpaid bills have come due. And I mean that in the worst way. We now have basically Orthodox folks being persecuted openly in the Christian church. And it's I'm going to be pointing some of this out to you. All the while, we are way off topic if you were to just measure, you know, what's you know, what what is the message that Christian Christianity teaches? Apparently, we've somehow lost all of that information in translation, and who knows what it is that the Bible teaches the gospel we're supposed to proclaim is or whatever. And all the while, 
heresy has become the new orthodoxy. And I got to tell you, when heresy becomes orthodoxy, it is intolerant and absolutely, well, uh, belligerent against those who hold to the biblical position. And so what we're going to be talking about in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is really kind of, you know, hitting that theme straight up. And then in hour two, we're going to be uh, listening to the next installment of the Experiencing God series over at Granger Community Church in uh, Granger, Indiana. So, you know, all I can say is buckle up, put your helmet on, get your sword out. You're going (laughs) to... I'm telling you, we are at war, and it's 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 as bad or worse than you can possibly think. So to start off today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to do much of a monologue. That's pretty much it. We're going to dive right into it. And uh, I, the first I- example of what it is that I'm referring to in this theme uh, comes to us via the Internet and, uh, uh, well, and Pastor Dana's website. I'll explain as we go, but let's do this. Imperial March from the Star Wars trilogy, the original ones. All right. Just needed a musical interlude to kind of get into this. All right, so let me explain what it is that you are going to be listening to here. Uh, A pastor from Calvary Chapel in St. Petersburg, Florida. His name is Scott Rodriguez. And apparently in St. Petersburg, Florida, there's a gal by the name of Dana Muldoon who has set up her own tent revival of sorts and is basically promising miracles and prophecy and all this kind of stuff. And what she really is is, well, basically a snake oil saleswoman. And um, we're going to be listening to two different segments of this because I got two different versions of this video. But uh, you can find Pastor Dana's website at PastorDana.com. And this is a gal who preys on the sick, the old, the people who need uh, the, the, the poorest of the poor, basically promising financial miracle and breakthrough and, and stuff like that. I mean, this is just old style uh, snake oil salespeople kind of thing. Anyway, um, so Scott Rodriguez of Calvary Chapel, St. Petersburg, he's one of the pastors there. Um, he, he was checking in on Pastor Dana's, you know, event and uh, was being a good shepherd. And, and I mean that in the best sense. You know, as a pastor there, he was caring for the people in his congregation and his flock who were in attendance at Pastor Dana's tent revival. He attended there, listened in had a conversation with Pastor Dana, went out, went there the next day, saw some of the people from his congregation there, and uh, even went up and basically allowed himself to have Pastor Dana, quote, prophesy over him. Now, I'm not going to play that portion of the video, but what I'm going to do here is I'm going to play the, uh, the, the, the video from when Pastor Dana is uh, 
you know, pretty much thank you, done thanking him for coming and uh, hands him the microphone, which was, <laughs> if you're a snake oil saleswoman, that's the it's something you ought not to do. But it's what happens after this that is fascinating and frightening all at the same time. So the first voice you're going to hear is Pastor Dana. She is holding the hand of uh, Scott Rodriguez and um, thanking him for coming. And you can tell she's a bit nervous because she's afraid this guy's going to blow her cover. Well, listen to what happens. Thank you tonight. I appreciate you very, very much. God bless you. You wanted to say something? To the Calvary Chapel. Hey, you guys know me as, as the few that are here from Calvary Chapel as Pastor Scott. It's good to see a few of you over here and then a few of you in the back and over on the side. I just wanted to say that, yes, I did talk with her last night, and I didn't know much about her ministry. She was kind enough to give me as many materials as she could on the spot, and her men were perfect gentlemen to me inside. And for the rest of these seven days that she's here, any of you that come and any of our friends that come, we need to be deeply respectful. We need to show an intense love to them. So far, so good. But above all of those things, we need to spend all of our time at the deepest place of prayer, praying that God indeed would protect all those who hear this false message that comes from her lips. <laughs> the look on her face. <laughs> that God would protect the people from the false message that comes from her lips. Oh, man. Very thankful for somebody bold for the truth and a pastor. What's he trying to do there? Protect the people that he has been charged with caring for who are uh, who attend the Calvary Chapel where he's pastor and to warn them of the false teacher and to you know basically do what is necessary to open their eyes to the fact that they're being schnookered by this woman. Okay, Pastor Dana, there's no such thing in scripture. So now we've got a uh, we've got Pastor Dana at this point looking like she wants to kill uh Pastor Scott Rodriguez and uh and let's see how this plays out now. Because God's message is not miracles, but that the shed blood of Jesus Christ would cleanse humble sinners and when miracles are emphasized, Jesus and when miracles are emphasized, Jesus is denied. Great job, Scott Rodriguez. Thank you for your bravery, courage, and boldness to speak the truth and to get in this close to warn everybody there of what's going on. Now, do you think this was met by people going, oh, he's right, we need to repent. What are we thinking? No, no, no. Listen. Sir. Okay, guess what? Now there's people in the audience, in the tent, that are rebuking Scott Rodriguez. Go, I didn't say it. They did. You, you all heard the words that he spoke, and his blood is upon his hands, not mine. His blood is upon his hands. Wow. So we thank you, Father God, in Jesus' name, you are rebuked. Now she's blaspheming God. Because he's speaking the truth. She's the charlatan. removed from my tent. And if you don't believe in miracles, that's not, you will need.
need a miracle one day. Get this on film because he'll need a miracle one day. And when he needs it. Now he's holding up a Bible. This is kind of degenerated into, you know, a Jerry Springer uh, program. I mean, the, the, he, this guy looks like he's going to be beaten up by these ladies in, in this tent. I mean, he's holding up a Bible and pointing to it. And there's a lady trying to grab that Bible out of his hand. No, not to come to my church. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, 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 don't touch him. Don't touch him. Don't touch him. Please be removed from my tent. Please be removed from my tent. Okay, now one of the ladies grabbed his arm, yanked the Bible out of his hand, and threw it to the floor. Please get out of my tent. Sir, please get out. It's not me, but it's the people that are knowing that this is not going to be allowed. Okay. Now, that's the first video. Now, somebody was there with a, uh, you know, a cell phone camera, and they caught more of, uh, of what she said at, from this point forward. And here's more of um, Pastor Dana and uh, what she said upon the expulsion of Scott Rodriguez from her revival tent. Every tree is known by its fruit. So Scott Rodriguez apparently is a bad tree because he's pointing people to the shed blood of Jesus Christ and is calling out this woman as a false prophet. Every tree is, look at that, every tree is known by its fruit. And you know what? As I spoke it tonight, touch not my anointed and you my prophet no harm. Yeah, don't touch my anointed, you know, my anointed. That means you can't touch her. You can't criticize her. You can't call her a false prophet because, well, then your blood is on your head. You can't touch God's anointed, and apparently that's what she is. There will not be blood upon my hands. What harm are we doing? There will not be blood upon my property because I'm a peaceful prophet. And if he thinks I'm a false prophet, woe be unto him. Yeah, woe be unto him. So apparently Scott Rodriguez is a devil for calling her out and preaching the gospel. Complete pandemonium is broken loose. And you know what? I'm glad my tent is here. Because it needed to be here to bring a revelation to the bondage of the religious demons that are across the streets. And if they ever step foot in my tent again, you are all well aware of what he said and what he spoke. And I'm going to tell you this now. Not all it takes is one angel. All it takes is one angel to protect me. I will fear no man. I will fear no organization. And I will not be moved on my walk with God or what God 
So she apparently has regained control of the situation and is saving everybody from religious demons and bigotry who would be against the crusade. Yeah, and she's got people clapping. And so uh, the guy who stood up for the biblical gospel, well, he was drummed out. The guy who stood up for the biblical gospel, he was rebuked as a demon. The guy who stood up for the biblical gospel is basically being called the problem, while the heretic is the one being championed, lauded, praised, stood up for. <clears throat> There's more, um, but we're going to have to switch gears. Here's the next piece of all of this. Look out! Look out! Peak elephants on parade! Here they come! Hippity hoppity! They're here, they're there. Big elephants everywhere. Look out, look out. They're walking around the bed on their head. Clippity cloppity. Arrayed in braid. Big elephants on parade. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. I can stand the sight of worms and look at microscopic germs. But technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. <laughs> I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint. But seeing things you know that ain't can certainly give you an awful fright. What a sight! Chase them away! Chase them away! I'm afraid. Need your aid. Big elephants on parade. Big elephants. Big elephants. Elephants. That's right. We've got a uh, well an update regarding uh, more fallout from the uh, elephant room too, and uh, this time it's well not churches leaving Harvest Bible Chapel, but congregations or in this case a particular congregation being kicked out of Harvest Bible Chapel because their leadership just wouldn't get to the point where they would support what James McDonald had done in embracing T.D. Jakes, a word of faith heretic and a modalist. Well, of course, he's a he believes in the doctrine of the Trinity as long as he can express it in modalistic terms. But before we get to the details of this congregation being kicked out of Harvest Bible Chapel, a few weeks ago, um, Harvest Bible Chapel, um, you know, they did some kind of an in-house pastoral hoorah kind of thing for the members, you know, the different member congregation and leadership teams within Harvest Bible Chapel. And well, at that, um, James McDonald took the time to, uh, well, talk about the things that pastors wish that you knew. And, uh, and he had some things to say to the pastors and the leadership teams of the different Harvest Bible Chapels within their denomination it is, that's what the Harvest Bible Chapel is. It's a mini denomination with James McDonald at the head. And he had some very interesting, well, things to say and advice to give. Here's James McDonald to explain. Number two, I secretly wish that these two verses were my elders' favorite verses. They're not my life verse, but I wish that my elders had these two verses for their favorites. One's from the pastoral epistles where it says, uh, reject a factious man after the second admonition. I wish that that was my elder's life verse. How much heartache is caused in a church by elders that forbear for the sake of friendship 
with a factious man. Reject a factious man after the second admonition. Now, reject him doesn't mean he he has to sit halfway back. Okay? Reject him means you can't come here anymore. Well, I'm... Yeah, they'll call the police and have you arrested for trespassing. Sorry. Okay, that means you get to go to a different church. Reject. Do I need to spell that out? Why, why, why? That's so cold. It's so wise. Now, before you are, well, schnookered into believing that he's actually giving a biblical teaching here, we need to review what the Bible really actually teaches regarding, well, factious folks. And so I have spent a little bit of time collecting the verses from the New Testament that pertain to this topic. And you're going to find that he's leaving out a vital piece of information. And this is important. By leaving out the vital bits of information regarding what the Bible teaches on this, he gets the, well, he, he's creating the impression that a factious person is somebody who disagrees with the leader. But see, that's not how the Bible defines a factious person. No, in fact, there's a very clear and specific definition for a factious man. And so what we're going to do is I've, I've pulled the passages that relate to this out. Now, I will admit I'm not reading these in their full context. But if you would like to challenge what I say these verses are saying... It, and you know, then you need to provide that from the fuller context. As I'm clear, I, after looking at these, I'm absolutely certain that what I'm saying here is has enough context to it that I'm not twisting God's word, and that each and every one of these passages is dealing with the same topic. Okay, Romans chapter sixteen, verses seventeen and eighteen. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to the church in Rome, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So Romans 16 says to avoid those who cause divisions. And who are those that Paul says cause divisions? Those who will not abide by sound doctrine. And they create obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine taught by the apostles. So a divisive man, a factious man, a factious person in the church is one who teaches false doctrine and will not, will not have their mind bound to sound doctrine, especially the doctrine laid out uh, by the teaching of the apostles. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and is an ignoramus. That's kind of the way the Greek talks about it. It understands nothing. Okay? 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Understand nothing. So who is it that causes division? It's the person who will not abide by sound doctrine. The well, the way the Greek describes them, the one who is utterly ignorant, doesn't understand anything. Okay, that's what who that's who the factious person is. Titus chapter three verses ten and eleven. For at, for as for a person who stirs up division, that would be the factious man passage, but I'm using the ESV. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. Who is the factious man, according to Scripture? The one who refuses to believe, teach, confess, and abide by sound words, sound doctrine. Second John, verses 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world... Those who do not confess the coming of Christ Jesus in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. By the way, it's important to note, Second John was written to, quote, the elect lady, and this is referring to the the you know basically the woman who owned the home where this church met. Okay, there weren't a lot of church buildings in the first century, especially considering the fact that uh, Christianity was not well. It wasn't officially recognized within the Roman Empire, and so they didn't have the ability to build churches. And many times they had to meet secretly or meet in homes. And so when it says, do not receive him into your house, don't let him into your church. So who, according to Scripture, is the one who is factious, divisive, the one who stirs up dissension, the one who we need to watch out for, the one who teaches false doctrine? But see, in this little pep talk that James McDonald is giving, He's omitted that fact. So now the factious person is the person who disagrees with the vision of the leader, the vision of the Fuhrer, the one who has become a disease within the community, the one who speaks out against the leaders, causing disunity in the community. Big difference. His definition of the factious man is not the biblical definition, and I'll prove that in a minute. But let's let's hear what his suggestion then is, uh, you know, regarding what these Harvest Bible chapels need to do regarding factious people. How much heartache I could have saved our church over the last two decades if I had lowered my expectation of my ability to change the behavior of others and raised my expectation that people will be as they have been. A factious man is a danger to the church, and you are released by Scripture to release him. Yeah, what the Scripture says, that's the person who teaches false doctrine. And I'm releasing you to take a small portion of your church's budget, build a catapult, 
put it in the church parking lot, and load it regularly. I think we can shoot this one right out of our county. So his solution, a factious person, which he doesn't take any time to explain as somebody who won't believe or abide by sound doctrine, what's what the Bible teaches. So anybody who's causing division isn't getting with the program, following and getting behind the Fuhrer, causing disunity in the community. That's the factious person. And his solution, build a catapult, put it in your church parking lot, and launch the factious person out of your parking lot and into the next county. Now, how did this play out? Well, it just so happens that Harvest Bible Chapel of Grays Lake, Illinois, I scratch it, I should say, um, the church formerly known as Harvest Bible Chapel of Grays Lake, Illinois, they're now Harvest Bible Church, well, they were kicked out of the Harvest Bible Chapel denomination. And uh, their pastor, senior pastor Mike Bryant, well, explained some of the details regarding this, well, their removal from Harvest Bible Chapel in a sermon preached last week. And I think it's important to uh, hear what he has to say and ask yourself, is Pastor Mike Bryant the factious man that Scripture warns us about? Or, in fact, is it really James McDonald? Again, the theme today is when uh, heresy becomes orthodoxy. Yeah. So here is um, Pastor, Senior Pastor Mike Bryant. Um, he's talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. We're partway through his uh, sermon here. And I want you to hear some of the details of what he had to say regarding his church's being catapulted out of Harvest Bible Chapel and why that came about. Was he being factious according to the biblical definition of, well, what it means to be factious, or was he actually doing his biblical job and questioning uh, James McDonald and what went on at the uh, Elephant Room 2 conference and his embracing of TBN Word of Faith heretic T.D. Jakes, and, and also he's also a modalist. Well, well, let's listen. Here's Mike Bryant. Not destroyed. There is hope amidst the suffering. Loved ones, we have hope. And for our church, as I'm, as I'm studying this passage, I am amazed at the pertinence of God's word. Can I just tell you that? I am amazed that God sees what we are going through and a year in advance knew that we would be in this passage. And with the sufferings that we are going through as a church, if you were here last week, you heard about the sufferings that our church is enduring. Now, we have a sign out there that says Harvest Bible Chapel. And did you know that no, we, don't, we are no longer a Harvest Bible Chapel because our denomination decided they wanted to kick us out. And why did they want to kick us out? Because they wanted to choose uh, to embrace, to invite and affirm somebody who teaches false doctrines about the gospel of Jesus Christ and about the Trinity. And so because of that, loved ones, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm perplexed right now at this situation. I'm confused, I'm discouraged, and I'm grieving over this. 
I, I, I'm perplexed at the reality that the men that, for, for some of us in this room, we've served with them for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 plus. I've been a part of Harvest Bible Chapel for 23 years now. And guess what? I cannot believe that these men have embraced this false teacher. I can't, I can't understand how they have done that. I'm perplexed about that. And, and you're probably perplexed as well, like I am. Or, or, or I can't, uh, I, I'm perplexed about the reality that they would invite and they would affirm this man and they would embrace him and share fellowship with him while kicking those of us who have been with them and supported them and built God's kingdom through the work of Harvest Bible Chapel for 20 plus years and to kick us to the side. I'm perplexed by that, as I'm sure you are perplexed by that this morning. I'm perplexed that when brothers came, when our elders went to them and spoke truth to them and say, hey, the things we're seeing, I, I, I don't think this is good. And when we spoke truth to them and say, this is wrong according to what scripture says, why are we doing this? We need to go in a different way. And they attacked us instead. I'm perplexed by that. I don't get that. It discourages my heart and it grieves my heart. So ask yourself this question. Does Pastor Mike Bryant there sound like the factious man described in Scripture? Let me Again, let me read Romans sixteen seventeen. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. No, this sounds like a guy who cares deeply about sound biblical doctrine. He rightfully understands that T.D. Jakes is a heretic. Express that concern. And what did James McDonald do? Have him kicked out. Who's the factious man here? Doesn't sound like the pastor of that church is being factious. He's standing for sound doctrine. No, in fact, it's, um, it is none other than James McDonald who's being the factious man. And if you think for a second that T.D. Jakes has repented and that he's straightened up and that he's now teaching the truth, I would like to play for you some audio from a recent appearance just a couple of weeks ago of, of an appearance by T.D. Jakes on Trinity Broadcasting Networks uh, during their, uh, their, their praise-a-thon. And see if this sounds like sound biblical doctrine that we can all embrace or if it doesn't little did i know that that god would open up not only our ministry but ministry opportunities around the world raise up sons and daughters in the ministry wow. all through a moment where paul crouch said yes to an unction of the holy spirit about somebody he didn't even know hello and we, you, you, no, didn't know no letter, no anything like that, didn't know to send a letter. Right down to the editor who edited my message said yes to this particular segment. Paul sat down at the right time, at the right segment, and everything began to fall into place like dominoes. Just yeah, he's describing how Paul Crouch of Trinity Broadcasting Network apparently you know, had an unction of the Holy Spirit you know, to bring T.D. Jakes onto a TBN. And help launch his career. So just wow, like that. Wow. Just follow right up. And I don't know, I don't know who this might be for, but there may be somebody right now. All the circumstances may be against you. You don't have the staff, you don't have this, you don't have the money, you don't have that. But when God gets ready to bless you. Come on now. Uh, uh oh, God's getting ready to bless somebody. This is, you know, yeah, you, you ever been to, you know, you know, like a Cub Scout meeting or, you know, one of those places where they have a raffle and you buy raffle tickets? I mean, this is like 
Heavenly Blessing raffle tickets. God's getting ready to bless somebody. Quick, get your lot, you know, your your tickets out and let's take a look. See if your number gets pulled tonight. I believe the last verse of the 23rd Division of Psalms, which I've been meditating on and just going back and, and cultivating, said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And I believe a lot of people, goodness and mercy is following them right now. It's following them right Like a stalker, you know, because that's what that verse means. Goodness and mercy are going to stalk you. They may not feel it. They may not see it. It may not look like it. They may not understand it. But I got good news for you. What's following you is about to catch up with you. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. Okay. And the blessing of the Lord will overtake you. And it doesn't matter how many people hate you. And it doesn't matter how many people don't like you. And it doesn't matter whether they know your name or not. You may not have the cameras. You may not have the money. You may not have the staff. But when God nods his head at you, you can step into supernatural blessings. All right, when God nods his head at you, you can step into supernatural blessings. That ain't sound biblical doctrine. Like, it's not even close. Um, wow. I mean, weird. Okay. It's getting a standing O there and uh, in the Trinity Broadcasting Network studio. Yeah, I don't think... Um, I'm sorry, but I'm just, you know, kind of watching, you know, T.D. Jakes going, well, that ain't sound biblical doctrine. So who's being the factious man here? Um, well, it wasn't that pastor of that um, Harvest Bible Chapel in Grays Lake, Illinois. He wasn't being factious. He was standing for, calling for, obedience to, subscription to, Adherence to sound biblical doctrine. Again, First Timothy 6, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Yeah, you know, I think the folks out there at Harvest Bible Chapel headquarters, they catapulted the wrong guy. They should catapult... James McDonald, because according to the biblical definition of a, one who causes division and factions, and ain't that pastor from Grays Lake, Illinois, who fits the bill, it's actually James McDonald. And James McDonald, he's the one who's the factious man, because according to the biblical definition, he fits it clearly. Whereas that other guy, no, he's the exact thing that the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls us to be like. Men who stand for sound biblical doctrine. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing. Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA-grade stuff going on here, but basically, they have this uber-smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. 
For more information about gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. And thank you for your support. We're back. Warning, we live in a day where heresy is considered orthodox, and if you believe in orthodoxy, you're considered a heretic. Things are upside down, backwards, and inside out. Not good. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And I, got, I just want to take a second and kind of make a point, and that is this, is that unlike other radio programs, I don't put up a paywall for people to listen to back episodes of Fighting for the Faith. Now, I could do that. But I think it's more important that people have access to the past episodes of Fighting for the Faith. That's more important than us charging people for that service. But as a result of it, um, there's a lot of, well, let's just put it this way. We're foregoing a lot of revenue, and we are now officially starting off the summer season. And the summer season is always marked by a decrease in revenue here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, the slim summer months are tough to get through. And if you don't already support Fighting for the Faith and you've benefited from uh, you know, listening to our archives that we don't charge for, then please, more than consider it, please support Fighting for the Faith by uh, supporting us. Now, if you'd like to uh, send in your gift the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460 Three eight. Moving along. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra. Doug Paget leading. This is a rendition of also spoke, spake, Zarathustra. You'll notice that they are spirit-led, not being led by limiting modernist notes. They are just letting the spirit guide them as they play this important piece.
truly a postmodern tour de force. All right, this next, we're, these next two segments are actually kind of one and the same, but I have to go to two different places to kind of make the point. First point is from the Pomo Musings uh, website, pomomusings.com. This would be the blog of the postmodern emergent um, Adam Walker Cleveland. And he's been doing a series where he's had guest bloggers on his uh, blog doing guest posts on you know the uh, their ongoing ser- series entitled Reimagining Christianity. As if you could do that. I mean, Christianity is is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But see, postmoderns are just they they've got to rethink it because you know Christianity, historic Christianity, works from the idea that truth is transcendent and binding on all consciences equally. It's this idea of Catholicity, and I mean this not Roman Catholic. I'm not talking about the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. I'm talking about the word Catholic itself long before there was ever a Pope. Uh, in Rome, okay? And uh, what I mean by the Catholic faith is the universal Christian faith. It is universal. It is the same regardless of what region, community, culture that you live in. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Postmoderns cannot abide by such an idea because remember, in the postmodern emergent fascist mindset, Truth never rises above a community. The individual doesn't exist, but the community is the living organic being, and truth is experienced in conversation within a community. And so the idea of transcendent truth, orthodoxy, is absolutely intolerable to somebody who holds to a postmodern worldview. This is the same worldview that you know brought us fascism. It's the same worldview. It's the counter-enlightenment, anti-enlightenment, irrational worldview put out by Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Heidegger, uh, Foucault, and others. You, you get what I'm saying. And Adam Walker Cleveland, well, he's bought into this you know, hook, line, and sinker. So his personal installment in the series that he's been doing on his website, Reimagining Christianity, um, well... Let's let let's let him explain what it is that uh, he has to say. He says this is part of an ongoing blog series on Pomo Musings entitled "Reimagining Christianity." So, um, what is one belief or practice or element of Christianity that must die so that Christianity can move forward and truly impact the world in the next one hundred years? So. Each of the uh, guest bloggers on his website answered that question. What is the one belief, practice, or element of Christianity that must die so that Christianity can move forward and truly impact the world in the next 100 years? Adam Walker Cleveland writes, he says, First off, I want to thank all of those who contributed to Reimagining Christianity uh, in this blog series the past two months have been filled with some wonderful conversations here on this blog. Some of my favorites have included Lars Rood, Why We Need Younger Voices in the Church. Sarah Bessie, musing on the practice of testimony. Bethany Stoll, saying we need to get rid of nostalgia. And John Vest, calling for the death of everything that makes Christianity an institution. Interesting, because, yeah, the church is an institution. Next, he says, I've been thinking about what I've, what I've wanted to contribute to this series as it ends, and I've spent the past couple of days pondering what needs to die so that Christianity can move forward and truly impact the world in the next 100 years. My answer, theological 
orthodoxy. Orthodoxy was a big thing in college when I was a religion major. It was very important to many of us to make sure we had the most orthodox perspective on a certain theological issue. Saying one person had the orthodox position was synonymous with saying that person was right and everyone else was wrong. And that doesn't seem to be something that's really going to help Christianity flourish in the coming future. Right belief may have been a priority in the past, but as we move toward an understanding of belonging, notice the community emphasis, behavior, belief, it appears that something else has replaced belief as the priority component of the Christian faith that more churches should probably be focusing on. After writing this blog blog post, I was reading Diana Butler Bass's new book, Christianity After Religion, and ran across this quote from Harvey Cox's book, The Future of Faith, quote, Faith is resurgent while dogma is dying. The spiritual, communal, and justice-seeking dimensions of Christianity are now its leading edge. A religion based on subscribing to mandatory beliefs is no longer viable. Diana goes on to quote another friend and theologian, Dwight Friesen, who says that Jesus had no interest in orthodoxy, but rather offered his followers a full and flourishing human life. As a pastor who works with children, youth, and college students, I'm not so much concerned that they have theological orthodoxy or right beliefs, but that they are seeking, doubting, asking questions, engaging with the story of God, and more importantly, living lives that seek to follow the way of Jesus. Think uh, think what would happen if conservative theological parents decided it was more important to love their LGBT son or daughter than trying to make a theologically orthodox argument about, a, about why it's wrong for them to be the person whom God created. Folks, Adam Walker Cleveland's concepts, his ideas, are not just in the emergent church. This is the same argumentation that we're hearing in seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches like Willow Creek, Saddleback, (laughs) Rob Bell's former congregation up there in Grand Rapids and other places. In fact, Tommy Sparger yesterday on Twitter just flat out almost embarrassed himself. I mean, he came right out and you know, took side, took the side of Brian McLaren and Rob Bell. I mean, he's exposed himself as being a postmodern emergent. And that's what the seeker-driven movement is all about. It's not about transcendent biblical doctrine. It's instead about unity of the community. And if you believe in dying dogmas, it's not viable anymore. And Christianity has got to get rid of orthodoxy so that we can live and thrive for the next 100 years. Folks, this is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. This is flat out a lie straight out of the pit of hell. This is not what God's word says. This is the exact opposite of what God's word said. May I remind you of like a passage, you know, from Titus, just to kind of, you know, make the point here. Okay. Uh, The apostle Paul writing to pastor Titus in Titus chapter one, he says, this is why I left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, <clears throat> not husband of another dude, um, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable 
a lover of the good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. This was not something for just back then. This is the charge for the church today. For every pastor in Christ's church today, he must hold firmly to the word as taught. That means there is a correct doctrine and there is false doctrine. And I would even bring Jesus into this discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you have a, a Bible that has red letters, I would like to remind everybody that Genesis, uh, the book of Revelation, not Genesis, the book of Revelation has red letters in it. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Red letters. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for that, right? I know that you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, do you think Jesus doesn't care about orthodoxy? Listen to Jesus' words here in verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You think Jesus doesn't care about sound doctrine and orthodoxy? He does. And Jesus is the same today, yesterday, forever. The truth. Jesus said, those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. You cannot worship God with false doctrine and heresy and lies. That's not faith. That's unbelief. That's not obedience. That's rebellion. That's not right worship. That's idolatry. And yet that's exactly what's going on. And here I read, I you know, read a portion of Adam Walker Cle- Cleveland's blog because his arguments are the same arguments, arguments being made in seeker-driven churches, and yet he's openly emergent. And the reason why the, 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 the arguments are the same is because they both actually have the same worldview. Just one is more open with it while the other isn't, okay? Now, in that same vein, okay, kind of on the same topic here, again, our our topic for hour number one here is when heresy becomes orthodoxy. I have a news story from the Huffington Post. From the Huffington Post, the headline reads, Richard Mao, evangelical leader, says engaging Mormons isn't just about being nice. If you don't know who Richard Mao is, Richard Mao is the head of Fuller Theological Seminary. He's the top dog there. And Fuller likes to position itself and market itself as if it's truly an evangelical seminary. No, it's not. It's ground zero for a lot of this postmodern, emergent, uh, anti-rationalist, irrational, counter-enlightenment philosophy that's masquerading as Christian doctrine. And Richard Mao has bought into it himself, hook, 
line and sinker, just like Adam Walker Cleveland. By the way, this story was written by Peggy Fletcher Stack of the Salt Lake uh, Tribune. Richard Mao never intended to start a riot within the evangelical community by saying his fellow believers had sinned against Mormonism. But that's exactly what happened. Mao, the president of Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, had been meeting regularly with Latter-day Saint scholars before he gave a seven-minute introduction of Ravi, Ravi Zacharias, an evangelical speaker who addressed a packed audience in the Mormon tabernacle in November of 2004. Quote, this is, listen to what Mao says. We've often seriously misrepresented the beliefs and practices of members of the LDS faith, Mao said that night. Quote, it's a terrible thing to bear false witness. The impact was immediate. Some of Mao's colleagues and fellow believers were outraged. They accused him of selling out, of not standing for Christian truth or adequately denouncing evil, of being duped. Undeterred, Mao continued this line of preaching to evangelicals for the next seven years and maintained regular conversations with Mormons. He has now expanded it into a just-released book entitled Talking with Mormons, an Invitation to Evangelicals. In the book, Mao argues that understanding Mormonism isn't just about being nice, it's a Christian mandate. This sounds like Rick Warren speak, right? Too often, evangelicals pick up little taught LDS beliefs, such as humans becoming gods or having their own planets, and put them at the center of Mormon theology rather than at the periphery. If in our attempts to defeat them, we play fast and loose with the truth by attributing to them things they don't in fact teach, Mal writes, then we have become false teachers and teachers of untruths. Folks, this is absolute deceit on the part of Richard Mao. He is literally arguing that the idea that humans become gods is a peripheral doctrine within Mormonism and that we're lying about them by latching on to that. I mean, it's it's absolutely unbelievable. Well, let's see here. I have a copy of Doctrine and Covenants, The Pearl of Great Price, and uh, here's my Book of Mormon right here. Now, I want to let you all know this. I learned Mormonism from the Mormons. I was not taught Mormonism by Dr. Walter Martin. No, in fact, I took the time to learn what Mormonism is by sitting and listening and being taught and being a and asking questions from Mormon missionaries who came to my house for a period of, what, like 10, 12, 13 weeks, Okay. I've read the Book of Mormon cover to cover. I've read Doctrine and Covenants cover to cover. In fact, my copy of the Book of Mormon and my copy of Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price date back to the early 90s when I was taught Mormonism by the Mormons. Now, it's also important to note this. I spent a lot of years doing counter-cult ministry to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And I have yet... I have yet to run into a Mormon missionary who does not believe that he's going to become a god. Every single Mormon missionary I've ever talked to 
when confronted and asked about it, will op- will basically flat out confess that it's true. In fact, I was t- I was uh, witnessing to a Mormon, a former Mormon missionary who's now in the Navy. I was witnessing to him a couple of weeks ago, and I mean, he flat out confessed that he's trying to become a god. That's what it's all about. This idea that Mormons believe that they're going to become gods is not a peripheral doctrine. It is not some aberrant teaching within Mormonism. It's the very core and center of it. And Richard Mao himself is the one who is engaging in obfuscation, and he's bearing false witness. And what's he doing? He's attacking those who would say, no, Mormonism is not Christianity. Now, that being the case... <clears throat> let's see here. I am in Doctrine and Covenants. Let's see if it talks about anything about becoming a god. From Doctrine and Covenants 132. By the way, Mormons consider Doctrine and Covenants to be, well, Scripture. It's part of their canon, just as much as the Bible supposedly is, right? In fact, they would say the King James Bible, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price comprise their sacred writings. So this isn't from the periphery. This is from their scriptures. Doctrine and Covenants 132. I will start at 19. It's a little bit long, and I apologize. Joseph Smith was not a good writer, so uh, this is a little bit convoluted. But let me read. And again, verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law, and by the new and everlasting covenant, and it is sealed unto them by the Holy Spirit of promise, by him who is anointed unto whom I have appointed this power and the keys of this priesthood, and it shall be said unto them, You shall come forth in the first resurrection, and if it be after the first resurrection, in the next resurrection, and shall inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers, dominions, all heights and depths, then shall it be written in the Lamb's book of life that he shall commit no murder whereby to shed innocent blood. And if ye abide in my covenant and commit no murder whereby to shed innocent blood, it shall be done unto them in all things whatsoever my servant have put uh, upon them in time and through all eternity and shall be of full force when they are out of the world and they shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things, as hath been sealed upon their heads, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever and ever, then shall they be gods, because they have no end. Therefore shall they be from everlasting to everlasting, because they continue then. They shall be above all, because all things are subject unto them. Then shall they be gods, because they have all power, and the angels are subject unto them. Doctrine and Covenants 132, verses 19 through 20, uh, make it clear that, that, well, that people can become Gods. By the way, this is consistent with what Joseph Smith, the guy who called himself a prophet, um, you know, taught in you know in multiple places, including his uh, what's called the uh, King Follett discourse, the King Follett sermon. And I'm on the LDS website, by the way. Um, this is not from a uh, this is not from CRI or from some hate-filled organization that thinks that Mormons are unorthodox. 
which they are. This is from the LDS website. You know, in fact, you can look this up. If you go to LDS.org and look for the 1971 edition of the Ensign Magazine or just type in their search engine, King Follett Sermon, you will find this sermon. Okay. Um, and let me let me read to you a little bit about this um, so that you know what the sermon. The King Follett sermon was one of the classics of church literature and was given by the prophet Joseph Smith at the April 7, 1844 Conference of the Church in Nauvoo, Illinois. Some 20,000 saints were assembled. The account of the talk noted that it was the funeral sermon for Elder King Follett, a close friend of the prophet, who had been killed in an accident on March 9th. Longhand notes of the discourse were made by Willard Richards, Wilford Woodruff, Thomas Bullock, and William Clayton. This reprint was taken from the Documentary History of the Church, Volume 6, pages 302 to uh, to 317. Okay? And by the way, since the Mormon Church teaches that they have a living prophet at their time, who was their living prophet? Their founder, Joseph Smith. Okay, so that's a little bit of the uh, the background on this particular sermon. But um, here's what Joseph Smith taught regarding this idea as to men becoming gods. And again, this is not my uh, interpretation. This is exactly what he taught um, from his own mouth. Okay, Joseph Smith. I wish I was in a suitable place to tell it, and that I had the trump of an archangel so that I could tell the story in such a manner that persecution would cease forever. What did Jesus say? Mark it, Elder Rigdon. The scriptures inform us that Jesus said, As the Father hath power in himself, even so hath the Son power to do what? Why? What the Father did. The answer is obvious, in a matter to lay down his body and to take it up again. Jesus, what are you going to do to lay down my life as my father did, to take it up again? Do you believe it? If you do not believe it, you do not believe the Bible. The scriptures say it, and I defy all the learning and wisdom and all the combined powers of earth and hell together to refute it. Here then is eternal life to know the only wise and true God, and you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you, namely by going from one small degree to another, from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you attain to the resurrection of the dead and are able to dwell in everlasting burnings and to sit in glory, as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. And I want you to know that God, in these last days, while certain individuals are proclaiming his name, is not trifling with you or me." So what is eternal life, according to the prophet Joseph Smith? That you become gods. I quoted it from Doctrine and Covenants, 132. I quoted it from Joseph Smith. Every single Mormon missionary I've spoken with not only affirms this doctrine, tries to defend it biblically, tries to confuse you and think that the Bible itself teaches it and mishandles God's word to try to substantiate the doctrine. This is not, this is not a peripheral teaching. 
Richard Mao is either deceived or he is engaging in a complete lie himself. Personally, I think he's lying. That's my opinion. But he may be just deceived. I mean, oh, yeah, I've been meeting with these Mormon scholars. And they, oh, listen, that that whole uh, thing about becoming gods, that, there's a couple people here and there who might believe that. But that's the periphery. That's that's not really sanctioned Mormon doctrine. That's not at the heart and center of it. Yeah, listen again to what Richard Mao writes. In the book, Mao argues that understanding Mormonism isn't just about being nice. It's a Christian mandate. Too often evangelicals pick up little-taught LDS beliefs. Little-taught. Such as humans becoming gods or having their own planets and put them at the center of Mormon theology rather than at the periphery. Quote, If in our attempts to defeat them, we play fast and loose with the truth by attributing them things they don't in fact teach. But they do. Mao writes, then we have become false teachers, teachers of untruths. He's the one who's become a false teacher. Mormonism, it's called the law of eternal progression. It's the very heart and center of Mormonism. And what all of the temple ceremonies and rituals are all about in all those Mormon temples that dot the land. Mao spells out the doctrinal differences between the Church of Jesus Christ and of Latter-day Saints and historical Christian faith, the nature of God and Jesus, the nature of the Trinity, non-biblical Mormon scriptures, and the rejection of the creeds. Mao disagrees with Mormon theology, but the Fuller president also grapples with what to think about Mormon founder Joseph Smith. Evangelicals generally view Smith as either a lunatic or a liar, but neither category adequately explains to Mao how Smith could launch a movement that produced so many good people who share his values. The same argument could be applied to Muhammad and Islam. Mao arrives at what could be seen by many evangelicals as a radical idea. He recognizes the positive workings of God beyond the borders of Orthodox Christianity. Such respect, he believes, is the beginning of, a, of careful engagement with other religious perspectives. And now to demonstrate that Richard Mao is at odds with Jesus Christ himself, I would like to take you to another section of Scripture where there are red letters. Okay, The red letters are not limited to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I would like you to, to hear the words of Jesus. Acts chapter 26, starting at verse 16, so that you understand what the context here. The Apostle Paul is recounting his first encounter with the risen Jesus while he was on the road to Damascus to round up Christians and have them arrested and maybe even killed. Okay, Jesus, speaking to Saul, the persecutor, said, Rise Stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and to and witness to things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So Jesus is saying, he's saying to Saul, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus himself makes it clear. All other religions except for the Christian religion, which teaches the gospel, which is not found in any other religion, 
salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's shed blood on the cross alone. Period. Men are brought to repentance and full pardon and forgiveness of their sins and are saved as a gift from God. All other religions, including Mormonism, and especially Mormonism, do not teach salvation by grace through faith alone. They teach a form of works righteousness. And what are they trying to do through their good works? Well, you heard it there in Doctrine and Covenants 132. They're trying through their good works and obedience to become gods. And yet the scriptures make it perfectly clear that there are no other gods. None. None. There are no other gods. Okay? And Richard Mao naively said, oh, well, look at all these good Mormons. They're not good. They're unregenerate pagans. And on top of it, according to Jesus' red letters here in Acts 26, they are under the power of darkness and under the power of Satan. And it's only the preaching of the biblical Jesus and Christ and him crucified for our sins that can release them from the power of Satan and turn them to God and to give them faith and have their sins forgiven. This is Jesus' view, not mine. Okay? Well, the Apostle Paul, later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What is idolatry? Belief in a false god. And it doesn't matter if the, the god that you believe in is named Jesus. The details, the doctrine, what you believe regarding that Jesus is what matters. That'll determine whether or not it's a true Jesus or a false Jesus, whether it's the real Jesus or an idol. Paul says, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we, re shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You get the point? Joseph Smith did not hear from an angel of the Lord. The gods he believed in don't exist. The Jesus he believes in is not the biblical Jesus. The angel that appeared to him was a demon. And Mormons are literally offering good works not to God, but to demons. This is what the scripture teaches. And Richard Mao is basically an enemy of the cross at this point by what he's done. He's not fit to head up any seminary that calls itself Christian. And what he's doing is he's lying. And who now is becoming the enemy of, the, of Christianity? The ones who stand for sound biblical doctrine, who refuse to bend the knee here and to unite with Mormons and call them brothers and sisters in Christ. They're the ones being demonized. They're the ones being told they're bearing false witness. They're speaking untruths. But they're not. He is. And folks, this is what happens when heresy 
becomes orthodoxy. And at this point, at this point, this is not some exercise in theory. This is reality today, right now, in the visible Christian church in the United States at this moment. Those who are standing from the, for the truth are being called divisive. They're being called scoffers. They're being told that they're the ones causing division and they're the ones being kicked out. While the ones who are embracing heretics, false teachers, false prophets, they're the ones setting the agenda. They control the power structures and they're the ones who are lying about and demonizing Christians and pastors who are standing for the truth as they have been commanded and ordered by their Lord and Savior in his word. These, my friends and brothers and sisters, are very dangerous times. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. <laughs> Wipe out. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. 
We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about Gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. And thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Now, just a warning, it's not a sermon. We've been working our way through uh, Granger's teaching on Blackaby. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon lecture midweek, uh, well, teaching, comes to us via Granger Community Church, Granger, Indiana. Jason Miller will be teaching again, and um, this has to do with Blackaby's um, Experiencing God curriculum that they were teaching there at Granger uh, for 12 weeks. We're up to week seven. This is a little bit shorter. Jason doesn't do as much teaching as uh, Mark Beeson does. I may supplement it. It kind of depends. But listen carefully because you're going to hear a lot about Granger's vision. Remember, this is all about hearing God's voice, not in the Bible. You can hear it there, but also in your everyday experiences. I mean, it, it, God is talking everywhere. You try to figure out where God is working and then join him, whatever that means. The Bible doesn't teach this, but anyway, let's kill the music. So without any further ado, here is Jason Miller and his uh, teaching on experiencing God, week seven. And uh, here we go. Welcome to Experiencing God, week seven, right? Week seven? Can you believe it's week seven? Have you ever done anything in your life this long besides parent? I don't know. I'm stoked about this, you guys. We're, uh, we're like over the hump right now. If you thought this was going to be a terribly long experience, you didn't know how you'd make it through the fall, 
Um, you're like, you're getting there. We are, we are turning the corner and, and putting this thing behind us. What's that? Let's go another 12, he says. What do you think? Yeah, all right. We're just, we're getting warmed up. We'll get you guys there by the end of the night. Don't worry. I had lots of coffee today, so we're going to get there. You guys have a good day? Everybody all right? The weather's beautiful, I know. I want to acknowledge that it's not just us here in the room, though, that we're talking to. So we're talking to uh, groups that are meeting throughout the week. Uh, we're kind of like digitally gathering with people online. We've got an online group where they gather and chat through the content. We've got home groups in the Elkhart area and other places around here. And I want to ask you, outside of the gathering, however you're gathering, maybe you're gathering in a home or maybe you're gathered here on a Monday night, outside of this environment, how many of you have heard at least one comment or story about how experiencing God is doing something for somebody in, uh, in their life that God's speaking to them? Have you heard these kinds of stories even outside of this context? That's pretty cool, huh? Uh, every week we get to hear emails and stories of the ways that God is starting to provoke things in people. In fact, right now, I'm in the middle of jumping into a project with somebody who is following God's lead, that God stirred something up in them. And so we're trying to check out the possibilities in this thing that God's leading their heart into. And we're going to see if anything comes of it. This is, this is the kind of stuff that's happening all over the life of our church as we take God up on his promise that he's with us, that he's real, that he speaks to us, that he's not just somebody who was alive and moving 2,000 years ago, but that he's alive and moving today. And that's why you're here, I hope. I know that's why I'm here. And I think it's going to be a... Well, yeah, God is alive and he's moving today, but he moves and speaks and teaches and works through his word and the preaching of the gospel. Good uh, time together. Um, Quick review. uh, Before we go any further, though, we're going to spend a minute or two um, talking about your experience uh, during the last week as you moved through the content, as you prayed through it, as you thought through it. So if you would, we're going to jump right in at your tables and first... um, Let's ask this question together. How do circumstances sometimes distort our view of God's work in our life rather than clarify what God is up to? God- <laughs> what kind of question is this? How do circumstances sometimes distort our view of God's work in our life rather than clarify what God is up to? I had no idea that, that my circumstances were supposed to clarify what God is up to. Again, this is not taught in the Bible. How do circumstances sometimes distort our view of God's work in our life rather than clarify what God is up to? And what practices help shift our thinking to explore how God might be using our circumstances to speak to us, to transform us, to reveal himself to us? You've got eight minutes on that. You good? Go for it. All right. Now, we're not going to sit here in silence for eight minutes while I let you talk to yourself within yourself uh, to answer the question. I'll just fast forward uh, to when they come back. So uh, without any further ado, here's Jason Miller again. So I heard a story about a meeting that I wasn't in. And those are my favorite stories because it means I, I don't have to sit through the meeting, you know what I mean? And in the story about the meeting that I wasn't in, some difficult news had to be delivered in the meeting. And it was kind of a, you know, one of those moments where you feel like the momentum might be lost. And... The person who had to deliver the news delivered the news, and they were working through the frustration with the news. And somebody else in the room said, yeah, but until you find out why. Everybody leaned in, I I guess, and said, what do you mean? And they said, well, until you find out what God's up to in all of this. And then it won't be so frustrating. And then it won't be so um, negative and painful. And we're going to look back on this someday, and we're going to say God knew exactly what he was doing And sometimes circumstances obscure God's activity, and sometimes they highlight it for us, don't they? 
And I don't know about you, but I know that I want to be the kind of person who has like the, the sensitivity, the spiritual discernment in a moment like that to lean in and say, yeah, but until you find out when or why, don't you? Um, to, to, to lean into what God's doing, even in the stuff where it seems like he's nowhere near what's going on in your world. I want to throw another question at your table so you guys can talk about this for a few minutes. Share an experience in your own life when God spoke through your circumstances to reveal himself. I know that might take some thinking. Share an experience in your life where God spoke through your circumstances to reveal himself. So all scripture isn't sufficient. It, you know, it, you, you need these other things. So this is just all subjectivity. I mean, I'm thinking it would be easier to take a class on how to uh, to divine what's going on in the world by interpreting the entrails of goats, I mean, or tea leaves or things like that. I mean, that would probably be a lot easier. I mean, I... Uh. For a minute. So if there's anybody bold at your table, you should just jump in and go first while other people are still stewing on it. But share an experience in your own life when God spoke through your circumstances to reveal himself. Take a few minutes on that one. Okay, so God not speaking through his word. God apparently, you know, you figured out what God was doing in the world and God spoke through your circumstances and revealed himself that way. All right, well, whatever. Next, moving along. That might have been a, a difficult one. I don't know about your group. For our group, that one took a little bit of, of digging in to, to think about that one. Now, um, I think there's lots of reasons for that, right? I mean, life moves on, and sometimes we're, you know, it's really hard to recall every nuance of our journey, like, on demand, and I get all that. Sometimes, though, I, I think um, it's because we're not real intentional about clinging to those moments when God has shown up, and we don't, we don't do um, the things that we could do to... to uh... Clinging to the moments when God has shown up. What are you talking about? Um to commemorate those moments, to lean into those moments, and to, to really pay attention. And so maybe God does speak through a circumstance. Don't you think that if this was an important thing, that Christians should be believing that the Bible would teach it clearly? But, I mean, where is any of this taught in the Bible? And we note it for a moment, and then life gets busy and it flies on by. And um, this next question has a little bit to do with how we how we be more intentional about that. So grab your workbooks, if you've got them, and turn to page 124. Grab your workbooks, turn to page 124. And we're going to uh, talk with each other just a little bit about the various characters that you had the chance to study. So um, a couple of questions for you about that little exercise in page 124 with the big number one next to it. First of all, as you consider these eight characters that you had a chance to dig into one of them, what did you learn about their encounter with God and the spiritual markers that they built? What did you learn? And what spiritual markers do you see in your own life as you look over your shoulder? Like what significance do those markers carry in your journey? As you consider any of these eight characters, what did you learn about their encounter with God and the spiritual markers they built? What does any of this mean? Well, thankfully, I have the uh, <clears throat> the workbook. Page 123, Spiritual Markers. I mean, who knew that there was an entire teaching in the Bible about... Wait, no, I'm sorry, there isn't. This is Blackaby's 
false interpretation and reading. He's not actually teaching something the Bible teaches. Don't you think if spiritual markers were important, the disciples would teach him? Anyway, the diagrams I use for circumstances, page 119 through 20, may imply that the circumstance is a bad situation. That is not always the case. Sometimes the circumstance is a decision-making situation. In a decision-making time, your greatest difficulty may not be choosing between good and bad, but choosing between good and best. You may have several options that appear to be equally attractive. At a time like this, begin by saying with all of your heart, Lord, whatever... I know to be your will, I will do it regardless of the cost and regardless of the adjustment. I commit myself ahead of time to follow your will, Lord, no matter what that will looks like, I will do it. Apparently, uh, you, you're trying to figure out what God's will is through circumstance. So if you cannot say that when you begin to seek God's will, you uh, you do not mean thy will be done. Instead, you mean thy will be done as long as it does not conflict with my will, uh, two words in a Christian language cannot go together. No, Lord. If you say no to God, he's not your Lord. So I, so apparently if you've divined that this is supposedly God speaking, you can't say no to him. Anyway, physical markers of spiritual count encounters. When Israel crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, God gave Joshua the following instructions. Choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and then tell uh, them to take up the 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan from right where the priest stood and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. These stones were to serve as a sign to the Israelites. Joshua explained, in the future when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the stones were to remind the people of a mighty act of God on their behalf. On many other occasions, people built altars or set up stones as a reminder of significant encounters with God. So select one of the following persons you would like to study. Check the box beside that person you choose. Read about his encounter with God, then answer the questions that follow. So you can choose Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Joshua, Gideon, or Samuel. Okay. So um, apparently, hang on a second here. I, th I think this is in the margins here. Uh, a spiritual marker identifies a time of transition, decision, or direction when I clearly know God has guided me. So you, these are some kind of, you know, it's kind of like those stones. You know, see, God guided me, so I, uh, those are markers, apparently. So these altars and stones become physical markers of great, great spiritual encounters with God. So you're trying to figure out, okay, so I'm looking at these other characters. These were their great encounters with gods and with God, and then they had spiritual markers. Oh man! Still point to God's faithfulness uh, to a crisis of faith when you chose to trust God. Maybe to pivot points of obedience that brought honor to God and others. So the, the idea then is, what significant do these markers carry in your journey? So you you, you're, you apparently have spiritual markers you're supposed to be laying down so that you remember things too. So we've got a little more time for this one. If you would take about 10 minutes and use that to... This is not a right reading of these biblical texts, by the way. This is a form of narcissus, narcissistic eisegesis, and it's mystical at that. This is mystical narcissus. Conversation about this exercise on page 124. All right, so they got 10 minutes to talk about this. I will fast forward, and uh, here is, again, is Jason Miller. I don't, know if, uh, I don't know if you keep a spiritual journal of sorts or a prayer journal or anything like that. Um, I'm a terribly inconsistent journaler, but I've had seasons in my life where that's been 
a part of my practice. And I know that um, usually when I'm cleaning out my house, do you have this experience? Uh, like I'm making room for a new roommate or something like that. And I find, I'll find this stack of journals and it will just completely like distract the rest of my day because I'll crack open these things. And even in the bad spots, you'll see where God was doing good things, you know? I know for me too, uh, I told this story on the weekend a little while ago, but in a season of my life where it felt like um, God was very, very, very far away from me, um, I had an encounter with God in scripture where he spoke through Psalm 22 because I read Psalm 22, which is a complaint against God's abandonment. And I was like, yeah, see? And then I realized that it was actually the exact psalm that Jesus prayed on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I remember in that moment too, um, just got like, you know, blown away by this, this way that God moves and speaks and he's near even in the really difficult times. And for me in that moment, I've never been a, you know, a guy who wears a, a cross or anything like that. Um, but that moment transformed the way I see the cross um, like nothing else in my life. And so that's actually a spiritual marker for me. I promise it's not a fashion statement, which is why I wear it inside my shirt. And it's not really, it's not really for you. <laughs> it's just for me. Um, but that's actually a, a spiritual marker that I carry around my neck now, not just as a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, just a moment that when I, you know, I see it in the mirror if I'm getting ready in the morning or something like that, and I think about why I decided to put that around my neck, and I think about um, Psalm 22 and the fact that before God, you know, before God, um, before God showed his power, raising Jesus from the dead, the first thing he did is, is he, he took on the pain of the cross and he decided to experience every depth of darkness and difficulty that you and I have ever encountered. And um, so that was a spiritual... So, so Jesus chose to experience the depth of darkness? That was what he was doing on the cross? <sighs> ...marker for me in my life. That I, wanted to, I wanted to have an altar built or you know, a pile of stones, but that seemed kind of heavy to carry around, so I put a cross on me. And I hope that that's something that you take seriously too along the journey. It's like God bestows these gifts on us. It's like, um, it's like if God has blessed you financially, but if, if week after week after week you find that like there's no money left because it's just like falling through your, your fingers and you know you need to build a budget to capture those blessings and to use them well. I think the same thing is true of all the other blessing God give, blessings God gives us, like the moments he speaks to us. Those moments come into our life and they should be precious and we've got to capture them and find a way to hold on to them and revisit them and, and know that he's done something for us and not get to the end of our life having had God just like blast our lives with blessings um, of when he shows up and not, not, not storing those up in our hearts and letting them be the fuel for our journey. Um, so I hope that spoke to you this week or maybe even tonight. Now, um, the final day in this past week that we were doing together, the final day in this unit, dealt with the way in which God uses the church to speak. Um, we've been working through this vision. I don't know if you've heard that we have a vision for 2016, and it's all about raising the bar. Uh, on the screen, you'll actually... Now, just so you know, Granger Community Church basically has opened up the vision process to everybody in their community. And, uh, you know, they, this is God speaking through the vision casting process, but they all worked this vision out, try to figure out what God was saying. So see the three sort of primary headings for this vision. This is our 2016 vision for GCC. This is something that we all prayed over and worked on together. These primary elements, which of these elements and our 2016 vision most capture you? And uh, you should tell your neighbors why. 
Uh, the first one you remember is the number of people being in the church in their neighborhoods, schools, cafes, and communities seven days a week will outnumber the number of casual Christians just going to church. That's a huge heading in our vision. The next big heading is we will have remodeled the Granger campus and programs. To okay, now see the distinction? This is important. This is a form of pietism. The number of people being the church, man, in their neighborhoods, schools, cafes, and communities seven days a week will outnumber the number of casual Christians just going to church. See, are you, you're just a casual Christian if you go to church, you know, because you're not being the church in the in a local school or ca- this is this is not a biblical category, by the way, at all. Not just our congregation, but the greater community with Jesus at the center. Uh, that's activate the campus, the A in raising the bar. And then lastly, for R, reproduce. Every follower of Jesus will be a reproducing follower of Jesus, and every church will be a reproducing church. Now, when you look at those, if you take a couple of minutes around your table and just explain what about that most gets you excited, and maybe you're even familiar with the subpoints on that vision, and you can jump into that too. Why don't you share that with your tables? Okay, they're going to talk now for about five minutes, and I am going to fast forward forward here. And here again is Jason Miller. All right, here's uh, another part of sort of the same question. So as you look at the 2016 vision, and maybe specifically the part of that vision that you feel most energized, most captivated by, this is a tricky one. I think this one's like where we put our money where our mouth is. How is God calling you to adjust your life in order to participate in this vision, in this movement? How is God calling you to adjust your life? So you've got to adjust your life so that you can participate in the vision, the new vision. It's crazy. I mean, serious. I mean, I just apparently can't just go to church and hear God's word, receive the Lord's Supper. That would be a ca- I'd be a casual Christian. So, so what do I need to do to adjust my life so that I can participate in this movement that God, see, God's at work there in Granger, and I need to join him apparently in order to participate in this movement. Why don't you take a few minutes and uh, be bold and share that around your table. Or if you're not at a table, maybe you're online or wherever you are, share that now. All right, they're going to go for about seven minutes on that particular discussion. Like I said, it's a little shorter tonight. Jason Miller doesn't really do as much teaching, but you know, you got to hear this stuff. All right, here again is Jason Miller. Hey, we've got one more conversation point around this vision uh, as we're processing last week's content and experiencing God. And it's simply this. What are you watching God do already through your own life, through your team, or through our church to fulfill our shared vision? What are you watching God already do? What are the stories that you're hearing? Maybe, maybe it's firsthand. Like you've seen God do something right in your own life to put the pieces together on our 2016 vision. Or maybe you've seen it in somebody close to you or on the team that you serve with, or even outside of a team with GCC, but out in your workplace or in the community. Um, Is there a story that you have to share with people at your table or in your group, wherever you are? Why should I believe that uh, God is working through the so-called vision? This, this, This is off topic. Your vision competes with the vision that Jesus already cast for the church. God's doing um, to make this vision happen through his people that call themselves Granger Community Church. Take a couple of minutes and and talk about that around your table. All right, they're going to take a few minutes to do that. I will fast forward again. You you know, interesting conversations going. Notice they're not engaging in any Bible study at all. 
What do you think God's doing? Do, have you heard stories? What, what is he doing? What do you need to do to adjust your life so that you could participate where God is working here at Granger? You know, no Bible study going on here. They're not being taught sound biblical doctrine. They're chasing their subjective tales. But we continue. You might remember that at the time that we were pulling this vision together, this is, this is a little while ago now, because this vision process began at the beginning of last year, and we took a whole year on developing the vision together through prayer and conversation and seeking God out. So that was the timeline on this vision development. And I want to draw your attention to that uh, for what I think is a really uh, exciting answer to the question that we just asked ourselves. And maybe this came to mind for some of you, too. But at, at the time of, of crafting this vision, our Elkhart campus was meeting at the Hall of Fame, uh, which seemed like a great location because it's right at County Road 17 and the Toll Road. So if you don't have any bearings for that, it's just a, it's easy to drive to it because you've got a couple of major access points to get to the Hall of Fame. And so we rented some space there and we were able to use what was actually a pretty good place for us as far as a gathering place on Sundays for the Elkhart uh, campus. Now, it's, it's good in that that it's easy to drive to, like for me, who lives in South Bend and sometimes goes there because it can hop on the toll road. Um, I, now, the toll road doesn't really work as well if you actually live in the neighborhood right by the property, right? And there's also the fact that um, while we had a great gathering place on Sunday, it's hard to figure out what to do if you want to reach out to your community on a Wednesday in Elkhart and you don't have a place to do that in, Right? Well, that, that's kind of just background, and we're developing this vision. And I want to draw your attention. It's not on the screen, but I want to read this to you. Under A, we're in Raising the Bar, so under A, for Activate the Campus, we said the Granger Campus, which is the place where we're meeting on Monday night here, you know, we're going to transform this into a resource for the community. We're going to create an early learning center for children. We're going we're to open up our doors and our hearts to our community in a whole new way and see this place as a resource to reach out to people who matter to God. But now remember from my uh, lecture regarding resistance is futile, you will be assimilated in the community. Drucker wants churches to not teach, just teach doctrine, but to be community resource centers. Meet the needs of your customers in the community. Temporal, imminent, not transcendent. Don't be teaching doctrine. We don't need any of that. So that's what they're doing. Their whole vision is about becoming a community resource center. I know. So that was our dream. For Which, by the way, uh, has nothing to do with making disciples and declaring repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. For the Granger campus. Um, but we also, this, this, is, uh, this is a vision that we finalized at the beginning of the current, are we in 2011? We are, right? Don't act like I'm the only one who's confused about that sometimes. The beginning of 2011, we, we locked this vision in. And the last point under A for Activate the Campus was, like Monroe Circle Community Center has done for a neighborhood in South Bend, so that's um, where we've been reaching out with food and educational programs and a gathering down in a very difficult neighborhood in South Bend where there's a lot of need. So like Monroe Circle Community Center has done for a neighborhood in South Bend, and like this remodel will do for Michiana here through the Granger campus, every location or gathering in our growing GCC network will exist for the unique transformation and elevation of the neighborhood, village, city, or region. Listen to this again. You need to, I mean, this has nothing to do with making disciples and declaring repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. This is a competing vision than the vision that Jesus has for his own church. These people are competing with Jesus's vision. And like this remodel will do for Michiana here through the Granger campus, 
every location or gathering in our growing GCC network will exist for the unique transformation and elevation of the neighborhood, village, city, or region where they are located. So we wrote that, um, we locked it in at the very beginning of this year. A couple of problems for the Elkhart site. First of all, um, the space isn't available during the week for outreach. And secondly, it's not located in a neighborhood. It's, uh, it's kind of out on the edge of town and, and away from the neighborhood. So we, we lock this thing in and we start um, focusing our attention on, on this part of the vision, I think, for the plan to activate the Granger campus. And then a lot of you know the story. We get this phone call from a church called St. John's in Elkhart who says, uh, we want to find a way to give you guys our church for your Elkhart site. And um, if you've been to St. John's or Elkhart folks, you know all what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, right? You guys, it's like, it's like God embedded the Bristol Street property in a neighborhood. I mean, like you walk out the back door of the building that, that, we're, that we're moving into there, and you're just staring at backyards, right? I mean, you, we, we took um, this, uh, this thing kind of out on the outskirts of town, and, and God, going ahead of us, I mean, we didn't knock on the door at St. John's and say, uh, thankfully, like, hey, things are kind of quiet here. Do you mind if we move in? Um, <laughs> And out of nowhere, God's just going ahead of us for a part of our vision that, that we had. I mean, we locked this in in January, and months later we get this phone call, and Bristol Street opens up. And I just think, like, that's a huge, big yay God. Am I right? That's really good. I want to turn the corner and just for a couple of minutes sort of set us up for our experience over the next seven days where the content from experiencing God is going to take us. And I got to say, I think God loves an underdog story. Because it calls us to faith. I think God loves an underdog story because it calls us to faith. God loves an underdog story. No Bible passage says that. Okay. There's a, a story in Genesis 12 where a strange random person named Abram, who later becomes Abraham, gets called by God uh, to leave his homeland. And God says, I'm going to bless you. And this is like, this is like the, the finite point out of which the entire story of the scriptures flows. And the entire people of Israel who would bring us Jesus and this redemptive movement that's moving all the way around the world. It starts with this one man named Abraham back in Genesis 12. And it's really bizarre because there's no qualifications listed for Abraham. There's no reason given to us, or so it seems, as to why God would choose a guy like this. Now, um, I, I, was in a, I was in Israel, and I asked some people who were there. I said, why did God choose Abraham? Because that's kind of a good question to ask when you're in Israel, I suppose. Or I'm really stupid, one of the two. Um, and I was reminded in those conversations that an entire tradition outside of the Bible has been written about Abraham to fill in the blanks here. So there's a story that's been written in this thing called the Book of Jubilees, which is this extra-biblical tradition, like outside the Bible tradition, that, that tries to fill in the gaps about Abraham. And it, and it makes up this story about Abraham becoming like the first monotheist. So his dad is this idol maker. Um, back in, in like Mesopotamia, in kind of where Iraq is today. And, and he lives there with his dad, and his dad makes idols. And uh, a- Abraham, for some strange reason, he's enlightened, and he realizes there's only one true God. And so Abraham, one night, takes the hammer of the axe, and he smashes all the idols. And his dad wakes up, oh, but, but he leaves one God, and he puts the axe in the hand of the one God. <laughs> and uh, they wake up, and the dad says... What happened to the idols, you know? And Abraham seems pretty obvious to me. That guy got him, right? (laughs) And the dad says, you know these are just wood. And then Abraham says, yeah, then why do you worship them? So 
those kind of stories get written outside the tradition of the Bible to try to fill in the gaps because it's so troubling to people. Why does God choose Abram? Why, why does one person out of the whole world get picked for a promise of many, many, many generations of descendants that will fill the earth like sands on the beach, like stars in the sky? Why does God choose that guy to have this promise of this nation that's going to come forth out of his grandkids and great-grandkids? Why does he pick that guy? I think the answer is in the text, and you don't have to have your Bibles. I'm just going to read you. There's this lineage, you know, these really boring parts in your Bible that just go like, and then so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and on and on and on and on. Well, it's right in the middle of one of those. This is right after the flood of Noah takes place, and we read, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. She becomes Sarah later. And the name of Nahor's wife was Micah, or Milcah, and she was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no children. And then it moves on and it says, and God called Abram and he made him this promise and I'm gonna give you so many kids and grandkids that you can't even count them. I think God loves an underdog story because it calls us to faith. <sighs> Later, there's this crazy, ridiculous story in Judges. You don't have to go there, but in Judges 7, Gideon is getting ready to lead the charge against the Midianites. So Gideon's lead, leading the Israelites, and he's about to go to battle against the Midianites. And God says, you know, I think you need some force depletion because you've got too many people, and if you guys win the battle, you're going to take credit for yourselves. And so he tells Gideon, the leader of the army, he says, turn to your men. Did you hear what you just said? Because if you had too many people, you'd take credit for yourself. God wanted all the glory. And tell them, if any of you are trembling with fear, just go home. 22,000 leave, 10,000 stay. <laughs> Think he was reevaluating that decision a little bit? God says, nah, that's still way too many. And so he comes up with this test, which sounds exactly like it's from a game show in 2011. He sends all the men down to the water, and he says, have them all get a drink and watch them. And it says some of the guys uh, would cup up the water in their hand and then lap it like a dog. And other guys would get down on their knees and slurp it up out of the water. And God says, the only guys you're going to keep are the guys that scooped it up in your hand and lapped it like a dog. 300 guys remain. So Gideon has gone from 32,000 men to 300 men. And uh, long story short, they follow God's instructions. They go down to the camp of the Midianites, and the Midianites literally self-destruct right in front of their eyes. God says that the men in the camp were so confused, they took their swords against each other. I think God loves an underdog story because it calls us to faith. I mean, shoot, turn to Hebrews sometime and read that chapter um, in 11 that leads to 12 where you, you see... Um, story after story after story of an underdog. Read about the disciples and read about underdogs and find out if um, you shouldn't actually be expecting God to lead you to a, some sort of crisis of faith and belief where you feel like the calling that God places on your life and the circumstances of you in your life are a mismatch or it doesn't make sense. So Abram receives this promise um, you're going to have overflowing descendants. You're going to have the biggest family reunions in the world. That's the calling and the promise. And he looks at his barren wife, and there's a mismatch there. There's an underdog story about to be written. God calls Gideon to defeat the Midianites. And there's this huge, well-armed army of Midianites at a camp. And God, like, actually literally ratchets down. He, he plays up the tension. I think God would have written the Rocky movies if he were a screenwriter. You know what I'm saying? Um... God loves an underdog story because it calls us to faith 
and trust. And you read the disciples and you see the stories over and over again of this like bumbling group of fools and you find out that God loves an underdog story because it calls us to trust. When we were working on the vision development process and we were listening to each other, all of us in the church, we were praying and listening and trying to figure out what God's calling us to in 2016. God started right. <laughs> we were praying and trying to listen. You know, what, God, what are you going to do? Listen. Do you hear anything? Yeah, I'm not hearing anything an underdog story because he started putting things on our hearts that we haven't done before. He started putting things on our hearts that are way too big for us to pull off in our own strength. Have you read the vision? I remember um, after, after a year of praying with each other, with all of you and, and looking at this thing together and we were, we were meeting for a week in a house and we were, it's like, okay, it's time to lock this in. It's time to commit and go with this. And I remember uh, we had it on the screen and we, we said, I think that's it. You think that's it? We said, yeah, we think that's it. And it was like, ooh, uh, you guys really want to put this out there? I mean, you know, we got the flight home. It's not too late to get to reality a little bit. And God was writing a mismatch underdog story for the people at GCC. And I think he likes those kind of stories because they... Yeah, it's just like Abraham and Gideon. I mean, wow. Their, their story should be tacked on to the end of the Bible us to faith. Um, sometimes you find yourself in a situation where you feel like the thing that God called you to doesn't match up with the money you have. So you look at your savings account or your retirement plan, and uh, maybe God's calling you to do something drastic, but you look at your financial resources and you say, there's a mismatch here. I'm an underdog. I'm like financially unprepared for this kind of calling. God loves an underdog story. Maybe it's a, a talent kind of thing. Maybe God calls you um, to something and you look at the talents that you've got and you just say, I think this is a mismatch. I'm an underdog here. There's like a crisis that comes when you feel that tension between the vision that God's painted for you and the work he's called you to and the circumstances that you're facing, right? Talent, connections. I mean, you can go on and on and on and on. But fundamentally, mostly, I think the thing that we most wrestle with isn't about um, the money that our organization has or the expertise that somebody else has. I think most of the time, it's just that we look at ourselves and we hear God's calling and we say, me? God, you're not the best talent scout. <laughs> I mean, like, have you seen my performance reports, dude? Are you setting me up to look stupid? Can't be me. I remember we were launching a college age ministry here at Granger a few years ago called Merge. And as we were ramping up to the very launch of that, um, I had a, a, one of my best buddies who was going to jump in on it. And we had our first big planning meeting and he didn't come. And I called him afterwards and I was like, hey man, we missed you. Where were you? He's like, well man, like, I'm not like a professional minister. Like that's not the kind of meeting I belong in. God loves an underdog story. And it's underdog stories that call us to faith and trust. And um, I think that's the story that he's calling us to. And I think in the next few days, as you jump into week seven, as we all kind of move through the week and we pray and we listen, we might discover that God's calling us to an underdog story. I would just say, bring it on. Will you say that? Yeah, I have no idea what this has to do with sound biblical doctrine. And reading scripture and hearing God's voice in his word and learning what is revealed. Bring it on. 
On the count of three. One, two, three. Bring it on! Yeah, right? That's what I'm saying. So that's all I got for you, like to frame the week. Bring it on. Listen to God. Don't shy away. Be bold. Let him speak something to you that's an underdog story and see if he leads you to a place where you come to a crisis where you have to ask yourself, do I really trust him? Or is that just a good story that I read about in Sunday school a long time ago? A um, couple of things I want to let you know about before we get out of here, and this is for everybody everywhere. Uh, first of all, um, we are jumping into a new series this weekend that I'm super stoked about. It's called How to Pray. Do you guys remember uh, earlier uh, this year in the program that you got, if you came to one of our live gatherings somewhere, you saw that we wanted your ideas about a November weekend series? Well, uh, a lot of you asked about prayer. We're doing a weekend series called How to Pray this November, and it starts actually before November, this coming weekend. I hope you're not going to miss it. I hope you'll bring your friends to that. And then um, I hope you also paid attention to this announcement about the table project. This is a new tool that's based on listening to you and the things that you've said about how you could be more equipped to do the thing that God's called you to do. I still remember burning in my brain. We were sitting in a vision meeting with a bunch of people from our church and uh, one, of, one of our rock star volunteers who's just sold out for God and who has this whole ministry initiative that he's been leading the charge on in Elkhart County for youth that's not like staffed by Granger or anything. He's just doing it because he's a follower of Jesus and Jesus led him to do it, which is awesome. But he asked like, well, is there a way for me to connect people at GCC with this opportunity because it's not, you know, it's not through like the staff channel and it's not um, on that narrow list of things that makes it onto the website or something like that. This is the answer to that kind of question because this is the place where needs and blessings can meet. This is a place where talents and ministries can meet. This is a place where passion and opportunity can come together. This is a place where prayer and people who pray can come together. The Table Project is out there and I hope you go online and check that out too and not miss out on that opportunity. Um, that being said, I'm going to pray for you. And uh, we'll get back to our day, okay? Let's pray. All right, we're going to just stop it right there. Not too much going on this week, except for, you'll notice, miserable handling of God's Word when it was finally brought up. And now we're chasing our subjective tales to try to figure out what God is doing. And and now we're, you know, we, we need to have some kind of memorial spiritual markers that we need to, you know, if God spoke, you got to be intentional about making markers, you know, so that you can you know, remember when he sp- said something. This is a complete misuse and abuse of God's word. And not only that, these guys are off topic and they now have a competing vision to the vision that Jesus gave the church. The vision that Jesus gave the church is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that he's commanded us to do. That would be teaching the full counsel of the Word of God. Along with that, you've got Luke 24, where Jesus says, Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Um, I'm. It's so nice of them that they're setting up a community resource center. Problem is, now they're allocating the resources of the kingdom for a competing vision, the vision that doesn't come from God. This is based on false doctrine, false teaching, and a twisting of God's word and mysticism. And a ta- basically, a, a, an open it's not even tacit, it's a flat-out denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. This is not good. Pray for the folks at Granger. They are way, way, way off-topic and off the mark and off the beaten path. They've merged back onto the broad highway that leads to hell rather than on the narrow path that leads to eternal life. 
Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Thank you.